Please be seated. We are in a study of the Gospel of John, and if you'd like to turn with me, we're going to the end of chapter 18, where the Lord is on trial, having been condemned by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers. He is then handed over to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate, for condemnation. Let's uh, pick up for context. Um, at the end of verse 29, where Pilate asks them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew, your own nation, and the chief priests have delivered you to me? What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we might also witness this good confession of our Lord Jesus and learn something more, something deeper about the strength and security of the salvation that he has given to us, that we, being rooted and grounded in his love, might all the more uh, rejoice and revel in it this day for his sake. Amen. So often, it seems, the great events of history are are, uh, suspended on a thin thread and that the slightest change one way or another would would change the whole course of history. For example, uh, John F. Kennedy might have lived a long life if perhaps the rain falling that morning hadn't cleared up just in time for them to take the bulletproof top of his convertible off before beginning the motorcade, or if they hadn't mapped out a route with two successive sharp turns where the car had to slow down considerably, which the Secret Service had recognized made the president vulnerable, or if they hadn't published that route almost a week in advance, or if any of the several people who saw a man carrying a rifle in the window of the book depository in the sixth floor had reported that fact rather than just assuming it was a Secret Service 
agent. Or if Kennedy himself, who had been suffering from a bad back, hadn't been wearing that day his tight brace that kept him rigid and upright after the first bullet struck him, rather than knocking him forward so that the second fatal bullet would have merely passed over his head. There are so many if-onlys in history, so many small choices that if things had unfolded any differently would have changed the course of history. However, from the Bible's perspective, history is not hanging on countless insignificant choices that seem to happen to us randomly. Oh, no. History is not a series of unfortunate events told uh, without any purpose. No, God is governing in the affairs of men. God is not doing evil. God is not even tempting men to do evil. But he is doing something which is very hard for us to understand, I admit. But nevertheless, so overruling and directing all things according to his will that nothing will take place outside of his control and sovereign hand, and his purposes and promises cannot fail. And that is particularly evident in the climactic events that we are reading of our Lord's passion. These things which had been prophesied from the foundation of the world, practically, and the passage even in, that we read is introduced to us this way, as Jesus is now going to be condemned by Rome and crucified, we read in verse 32 that this was in order that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. All these events are under the direction of an unseen hand to make it clear that in fact what is happening is that Jesus is laying down his life, the just for the unjust. No one is taking it from him. We saw how clearly these events were shaped, presented in the Jewish trial to see how Jesus is dying the just for the unjust, where as Jesus is confronted by false witnesses, he makes a true confession. Meanwhile, his disciple, Peter, who was confronted by true witnesses, makes a false confession. Jesus faced the most powerful officials in the nation and stood firm. His disciple Peter was questioned by a lowly slave girl and immediately collapsed. Jesus refused to defend himself. Peter defended himself with even oaths and curses. Everything was happening the way that Jesus predicted, but everything was happening exactly the opposite way of what Peter had predicted. And here's the most crucial difference. Everything that Peter did was to preserve his life, whereas everything that Jesus was doing was to lay down his life as the good shepherd for his sinful sheep. God was making him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that was in the previous trial. In the same way, at the end of this chapter, we have yet another portrait of Christ's redeeming work, a portrait not in paint, but in history. And I'd like to consider with you today what the passage means, what it teaches, and how that changes our lives. So three points, or in other words, exposition, doctrine, application, the old Puritan style, right? What is it saying? What is it teaching us? How does that change our lives? So first, what is it saying? On the surface, 
the story is very straightforward and simple. The Jewish rulers have found Jesus guilty, and they bring him to the Roman governor, to Pilate, in order to have him executed. Pilate, however, is not going to do anything at their request without at least hearing charges or letting Jesus offer a defense. They accuse Jesus of sedition, that is, being a rival to Caesar. That's treason. Pilate questions Jesus about being a king and immediately recognizes that he is innocent. And three times, once in our passage and then two more times, Peter goes on to declare him innocent, that he's done nothing wrong. And he tries to find some way to release Jesus without upsetting the crowd too much. Now, there was this custom that had developed in the Roman-occupied province of Judea at the time of the Passover, probably to honor Israel's release from captivity. Um, the Jews were permitted to ask for the release of some offender from prison. So Pilate seizes on this for an opportunity that would maybe satisfy everyone. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? With one voice, they all cry, not this man, but Barabbas. And in my translation, it says that Barabbas was a robber. Some of you have that he, was, that he had taken part in rebellion. Uh, which is indeed what the other writers actually say about him. Um, the Gospel of Mark, for instance, says that he and his fellow rebels had committed murder in the rebellion. So the word here that I have translated robber means essentially one who seizes by violence, um, maybe as opposed to a burglar, right? But in a political context, it can mean to seize power, that is to be an insurrectionist a revolutionary, or a rebel. I think that's probably preferable here, especially given the longer explanations that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which John assumes you've read. So the Jewish rulers um, have falsely accused Jesus of insurrection, that much is clear, and want him condemned to death. And they ask uh, Pilate to do the dirty work. Uh, Rome had lots of penalties, but... For insurrectionists, for people that were committing rebellion against the empire, there was only one penalty, and that was crucifixion, a particularly, dead, uh, a particularly uh, painful, slow, public death. So they want Jesus crucified, and they ask instead for Barabbas, who has been truly accused of insurrection, that he would be released. All right, well... This is the miserable account, and in this travesty of justice, you might not think that anything was being guided from on high here. Pilate and the Jewish rulers are all behaving selfishly, wickedly. Jesus is apparently in Pilate's hand, but I'd like to point out to you that there is another hand at work, that what is happening here is that Jesus is laying down his life, and that God is so loving the world that he has given his only begotten son for this very moment. All these things had been foretold. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by his own, numbered among the transgressors, and so forth. We just read it in Isaiah 53. Later in the book of Acts, as the church meets for prayer, they quote Psalm 2, which they also say has been fulfilled, and then saying explicitly that Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, 
had gathered together to do whatever your hand, O God, and your purpose determined before to be done. For Jesus had come to die, not in any ordinary way. He had repeatedly stressed that he would be condemned to death, that Jesus would die the death of the guilty man, of a condemned criminal. Now, if Jesus had died from disease or had been killed in an accident or something, murdered by thieves, well, that would not have been this demonstration that he was being condemned as a punishment for sin. But because Jesus was now arraigned before the highest judge of the land, condemned as a guilty criminal, and sentenced to the death of a rebel, we can see how he takes the role of an evildoer. Nevertheless, three times in the passage, he's declared to be innocent, that he is not suffering for his sins. And how beautifully this is illustrated even in the facts of history, when then Barabbas, a man who is guilty of rebellion, is released. And Jesus, who's innocent of rebellion, is condemned and executed on the cross that was no doubt waiting for Barabbas. These events are not all they seem on the surface. And I just wonder what it was like for Barabbas. I mean, you can imagine how the guards go to his cell where he's shackled and awaiting his execution. And then he hears the best news that any condemned man could hear. Barabbas, you're being released, set free. And that cross for you, the one in the middle, some man named Jesus is going to die on that cross instead. And in one shattering moment, his, his, his life has been snatched from the jaws of death and he walks free. And I just want to wonder, did Barabbas, did he see Jesus? I mean, I think there would be just a a tremendous temptation just to go and see someone else dying on the cross where you were to be hanged. To see someone else dying on the cross meant for you. Did he stand among the crowd at Jesus' crucifixion? Well, I don't know. What had Barabbas heard about the man whose death meant his freedom? Did he later find out about this one who was the lamb to take away the sin of the world and who had died so that sinners could live and said, boy, that really was true in my case. Well, I hope he did. I would love to meet Barabbas one day. But this I know, and this is my second point to you today, and this is the teaching that I want to stress. We are all Barabbas. We are all Barabbas. Here's the teaching, the doctrine I want for us to take. Don Barnhouse wrote, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place, for it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God to be poured out upon me. I deserved that eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And he was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. Christ was my substitute. We read earlier from Isaiah the prophet, who had predicted centuries before that he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace would be upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The whole sacrificial system of Israel had prepared us to understand 
these events. You think about, for example, the cleansing of a leper. Two birds were brought. One bird was killed and its blood emptied into a basin. The other bird was dipped into its blood and then with crimson wing set free to fly up to heaven. The bird slain, of course, pictures the Savior, and every soul that by faith has been dipped in his blood flies upward to heaven, sweetly singing. The sacrifices, the ceremonies, they had all taught us about this substitution of the Lord who was to come. And Paul put it this way after the fact, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Peter adds, Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We are all Barabbas. And all of the religions and all the philosophies of this world have to deal with this problem of sin and guilt somehow. But all the other religions and philosophies come up with light and hollow solutions in which man is spared the final humiliation of knowing that he is truly guilty and, in fact, stands condemned. As one theologian writes, all other forms of religion, not to mention philosophy, deal with the problem of guilt apart from the intervention of God, and they come to a cheap conclusion. In them, man is spared. The humiliation of knowing that the mediator must bear the punishment instead of him, and he is not stripped absolutely naked. But what power there is even in Christian living, to know at the center of our religion is a man who has died for his enemies, not even his friends. God has intervened to rescue us that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. The theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. If you want the fancy words, I like just saying we are all Barabbas. But there is a term for that, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal because it satisfies justice for wrongs committed so that the soul that sins shall surely die, the Lord says. It's substitutionary because it's taken by another, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It's atonement because it satisfies God's wrath against sin and reconciles us to God in peace. Now, there have been many substitutionary deaths in the course of history. In fact, uh, John Bunyan, I don't know if you know this, he, he served in the army under Cromwell. And you probably wouldn't know that because he, he makes no reference to that except at one point. He, the only reference he makes to all those years as uh, being a soldier in the Civil War is when he tells us that he was assigned to a unit that was ordered to besiege a city. And just as they were about to take up that assignment, another soldier asked to go and in Bunyan's place. Bunyan didn't say why. But in the case of that soldier, while, while he was standing duty as a sentinel, he was shot in the head and killed. And, well, you might say he died in Bunyan's place. But, of course, no one intended that to happen. The other fellow didn't give his life for Bunyan's. He didn't die so that Bunyan might live. But the substitution took place, and that idea had a very, left a very deep mark 
on John Bunyan. The one thing that he records, the only thing he records from his time as a soldier in the war is that somebody else died in his place. In our case, it wasn't just someone else. It was God the Son. It wasn't an accident. He came for the very purpose of laying down his life in our place. We didn't deserve such love, but it took place, as Paul writes elsewhere, when we were enemies. And it wasn't simply a death. It was the crucifixion of the Prince of Life. Justice was paid. Reconciliation achieved. This is what God's love did for us. Here is the love. The sin-bearing love of Jesus. For a good man, Paul writes, someone might even dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The worthy for the unworthy. For enemies and not friends. Perhaps Jesus might have died in some other way that would have still been a substitute to bear our sins, I don't know, but it wouldn't have made it so clear that Jesus was literally dying in the rebel's place. And so Barabbas represents every one of us who are also, in fact, rebels against our true king who have not done what he's commanded us to do and who have done what he has not commanded us to do, who have lived life on our own terms and as we've seen fit and are therefore guilty of insurrection, of ignoring our king's orders, and standing guilty is charged before the bar of justice. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And Barabbas himself deserved to die, as do we. But this passage shows us, as well as tells us, that such a great thing has happened to take away our sins. God incarnate has come and suffered the death for guilty rebels to bear our sins away that we might go free. And this is then the final point of application. Our comfort in Christ's substitution. Our comfort. Here's the last point I have for you. Pontius Pilate, listen, three times declares Jesus innocent. And then we see the Lord condemned and die for rebellion. Here is the judge freeing the guilty Barabbas and delivering innocent Jesus to death. If you understand what happens at that moment, you understand everything. You cannot come up with one fact half as important as that for your life and for mine. That the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. That you were on His heart when He died. Your name as it were, written on his hands to bring your soul bound low to the cross in wonder and awe, to see it as I think Barabbas would have had to go and see that Christ is there condemned and that here we are alive. Christ came into the world to save sinners, a fact of history as, as real as our sins, which are also facts of history, as real as the day of judgment yet to come. I read this week about a prisoner who understood this, and he said, though I'm doing life in prison, I have never felt more free. And as I say, what practical power this is in the Christian life, in, in peace, in loving other people, when we have as the center of our religion a, a man dying 
for his enemies. The great theologian of the heart set free is Martin Luther, who wrote this in his lectures on Galatians, commenting on that verse, he loved me and gave himself for me, Luther said. Friend, have you considered what the Son of God is and what sort of person he is and how great is he? What in heaven and earth is compared to him? And why would you brag so much about your works and service? If it were possible that I, a lost and condemned sinner, could have been ransomed by another treasure, what need could there be for the Son of God to have died? But because in heaven and on earth no treasure was nearly enough to make sufficient satisfaction for my sins, that this great need compelled the Son of God to offer himself for me. And he did that gladly, willingly, and with great love as St. Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. These words, who loved me, are full of great and powerful comfort. All these words are so powerful to awaken us to faith. Whoever can say that single little word, me, with such faith and mean himself, as St. Paul was able, would undoubtedly also know enough to dispute and defend against the righteousness that belongs to the law. For Christ has not given a sheep or an ox or gold or silver, but he gave himself for me. For me, I say, who was the most profane and condemned sinner. So now, because God's Son has given himself for me in death, my heart is strengthened and comforted against God's wrath and misfortune. Paul declares these words not only for himself, but for all Christendom. He is not saying that he's exceptional, This is for all, so that each accepts and applies it to himself. Although the law also is divine teaching, and the law has God's honor and majesty, yet I did not live according to it, nor did it give itself for me. But the law frowned at me, accused and frightened me. But now I have another who has saved me from law, so that it can never again frighten me nor can sin or death. It has helped me to freedom, to the righteousness of God, to eternal life. And the one who has done this is called God's Son who loves me and has given himself for me, to whom be glory and honor. Now, faith grasps and holds Christ, the Son of God. Whoever grasps this one by faith has righteousness and eternal life. Christ, God's Son, has given himself for us with pure love, by which we're not only saved from sin and death, but have acquired eternal righteousness in life. And by these words, St. Paul describes the loveliest and most comforting aspects of Christ's office and priesthood. He has made us children of God, prays for sinners, offers himself the sacrifice for your sins, redeems you, teaches and comforts, and so forth. And so you must learn to picture Christ rightly as he is, not as the philosophers and fanatics do. They turn him into a new lawgiver who did away with the old law and gave us a new law in order to rule his city. But he is thereby made a bully and tyrant. But you should picture him as God's son, whom the Father has offered not to gain our service and righteousness, 
but of His pure love and mercy. A sweet offering for sinners by which He would make us holy forever. He did not die to make the righteous righteous. He died to make sinners into righteous men and friends and sons of God and heirs of all heavenly gifts. And it is therefore an intolerable and horrible blasphemy to think up some work by which you presume to please God when you see that He cannot be placated except by this immense, infinite price, the death and the blood of the Son of God, one drop of which is more precious than all creation. And when you hear of such an enormous price that was paid for you, would you come along with your works, your merits? What are all the good works of all men and all the pains of all the martyrs in comparison with the pains of the Son of God dying on the cross so that there was not one drop of His precious blood, but that it was shed for your sins? And if you could just evaluate the incomparable price, you would throw all your ceremonies and vows and works and merits into the ash can. What an awful presumption to imagine that there is any work good enough to pacify God when what God required was the death and the blood of His own and only Son. But Christ is the joy and sweetness of a broken heart. Christ is the lover of poor sinners and such a lover that He gave Himself for us. Here is our joy and comfort. Here is love indeed. And so, in conclusion, what can I say? Uh, When Jesus was offered to the people, the people all said with one voice, no, give us Barabbas. And so Barabbas they got. And even though I just said that Barabbas was probably not a robber, the fact is Barabbas, Barabbas was a robber. He robbed them of Jesus. Barabbas is always a robber robbing people of their hope, their salvation. In fact, uh, a whole nation followed his program of rebellion, and uh, just a few years later, that rebellion against Rome cost them their lives and nation. Nobody is ever better off for rejecting Jesus Christ. And every day you choose a rebel named Barabbas over Jesus. He's robbing you more robbing you of God, robbing you of life, robbing you of peace of conscience, robbing you of hope eternal. He'll rob you to the moment of death and he'll rob you beyond. Barabbas is a robber. Will you not therefore say, give us Jesus, for here is love and life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come once again to the one who was born into this world, to be a king, to bear witness to the truth, to bring a kingdom of peace, to reconcile those who were enemies while we were yet sinners, that we should have our freedom and life in him. We pray that once again, his glories, his encouragements, his love should shine in our hearts, that we should offer you nothing else as nothing else could be added to or required beside the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for taking away of our our sins, not in any light or 
hollow way, but only in that which is equal to the vast iniquity and misery and wickedness of this world. Only such blood can wipe away such sin. And we are thankful.